Nehemiah chapter 6. I chose that scripture reading uh, out of Matthew, that whole scene there of Jesus and the temptation, uh, the 40 days that he spent in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. I chose that because it relates to really the point of, of our, our text today. Notice that in the midst of temptation, and how did the temptation come? It was a twisting of, of truth, right? Satan's trying to quote scripture to Jesus, but he's taking it out of context. He's using it incorrectly. It's twisting truth. And, and Jesus' response is continually just to know and to obey the word of God, to quote it back, right? Um, and that's really the, the, the point of what we're going to get to this morning. I titled the message, if you, if you notice on your uh, bulletin, uh, Political Integrity. Political Integrity. And you might be thinking, oh man, a, a sermon about politics. What? Uh, well, kind of. Uh, kind of. What, what is politics? The, the word. How do we define politics? Uh, well, if you look it up in the dictionary, it, it, it basically says it has something to do with the leadership and the governance of people, but there's a, there's a broader definition, which is just how we deal with people, right? So politics includes lots of things that you deal with every day, because you deal with people every day. You, there, there's certainly a, a, a government element to politics, but there are, there's politics of the workplace, right? There are family politics. Uh, there's church politics. Right? Anytime that we're, we're dealing with people and, and learning how to navigate, uh, what it, you know, what, it, what does it look like to do that in a, in a way that maintains the integrity of what we're called to be as people of the Word of God? Uh, we're gonna have to exercise God's Word in those instances. We're, we're gonna have to learn how to, how to see past the politics at times. Uh, in order to to walk in a in a way that's in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, right? Um, and so that's really what we're coming to in Nehemiah chapter six. Um, if you've been with us, you, you know. I mean, the the exiles have have come back out of captivity to repopulate uh, the land of Israel, Jerusalem specifically. Here, they're trying to rebuild a city that had been sacked and and completely destroyed. It, it was a judgment of God upon them for sin and but God had told them you'll be able to go back and so they've they've come back and 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 as they're trying to to rebuild not just for the sake of having a place to live in a city that doesn't look like it's in rubble anymore but ultimately to rebuild a a right relationship with God right worship with God they they've erected a temple uh, and now in Nehemiah's day they're erecting a wall to fortify the city uh all the while that they're doing these good things, there's just opposition that keeps coming up over and over again. And we're going to see names that are very familiar in this passage because here we are again. The wall that they've been building throughout the book of Nehemiah is just about done. The wall itself is, is really finished. Uh, the only thing that hasn't happened yet is just setting the gate, setting the doors, but they're that close. And there's, op- there's opposition yet another time that's going to come and try to Try to mess it up. And, and, and why? Again, because that opposition ultimately is a spiritual opposition. It doesn't want to see the work of God and the people of God flourish in the world. And it's going to get a little bit political for Nehemiah as he navigates various groups of people throughout this latest scene of opposition. So 
Would you look down with me in chapter 6? And uh, by the way, let me, let me just tell you, there's, there's three points that we're going to deal with this morning. The first one is, is having integrity in dealing with secular powers. And then the second one is going to be having integrity in dealing with compromised false prophets. And the third is that we're, we're going to see Nehemiah having integrity in how he deals with um, compromised internal insiders who are influential. Right, so we're moving kind of from the secular into the sacred in terms of groups of people, but there's just there's lots of sin wrapped up in all of it. So we'll start with uh, verse one, and we're we're this is the first point: integrity in dealing with the secular powers. Let's read it together. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Sanballat and Geshem said to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hekaferim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of the reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. And I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. All right, so integrity in dealing with secular powers. Yet again, here we run into the outside meddling Sanballat and Tobiah and, and this other neighboring governor here named Geshem. They are, as one commentator called them, the unholy trinity. Uh, we keep seeing the, these names popping up throughout this narrative. They're the unholy trinity uh, of opposition against God and against God's people, right? Uh, we've seen Sambalat and Tobiah, uh, Geshem, not so much, but, but again, all three of them are, are governors of, of neighboring sort of city-states. Uh, everybody's under the rule of Persia, right? But these, these guys are very loyal to and, and politically ambitious towards their Persian overlords, if you will. And, and they, they, they don't have a whole lot in common. In fact, they don't really get along except for this one common interest. They don't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. And so they lock arms together. Uh, and it's really, again, it's a spiritual issue. It's, it's spiritual opposition to God and to his people and to his work, right? And, and what's happening here? Well, They've tried before. We've read about various uh, previous threats of military violence. They've tried some economic trouble and strife, and they've failed in those attempts to thwart the work of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. And, and they're, they're sensing that their window of opportunity is about to close, 
The wall's pretty much done. The only thing that's not done is, is these gates and these doors. And so with this one, one last shot, with this closing window of opportunity, they devise a new plan. And yet this one kind of sounds like a change of heart. Whereas before they came with threats, we're going to bring our armies here, we're going to do you great harm overtly, this time they want to organize peace talks. Seems like a change of heart, right? Maybe as if to say, all right, look, the wall's built. Look, let's just, let's just reckon with the fact that we're, we're looks like we're going to be neighbors for a while. And if we're going to be neighbors for a while, then let's make some treaties. Let's make some trade alliances. And so they propose this summit to happen and they, and they say, let's do it in neutral territory. They, they go out into the plains of Ono, which is about 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And that seems to be the new tactic. So here's the thing. You're Nehemiah, and, and, and these guys have been troubling you a lot and the people a lot in the past, and all of a sudden they come with this peace talk uh, invitation. What do you do? What do you do when those who have demonstrated only animosity towards you in the past suddenly seem to change their tune? Well, here's what you do. You, you use your discernment, Right? Somebody's been nothing but hurt to you in the past, and all of a sudden it seems like they're changing their tune. Maybe use discernment, right? And that's what he does here. Again, at the end of verse 2 and, and verse 3, he's, he's kind of going, you know what? Um, we're doing a good work here. Why should I leave this to come down to you? And he, and he says at the end of that, they intended to do me harm. He's discerning that. Now, this reaction from Nehemiah may seem a little bit harsh. Uh, from a politician standpoint, it might feel a little bit hawkish, right? But he discerns that there were ulterior motives at work in this invitation to a peace summit. And he turns out to be right, which we'll see in a minute. But before we get to that, let's just pause and, and examine a little bit of application here together. There's an old saying that goes, if you can't beat them, might as well join them, Right? Can't beat them, join them. And I, I want to say this to us. Satan uses that tactic all the time against God's people. All the time. Not that he's intending to join us, right? But, but there's a sense in which if you can't beat them, join together in alliance with them somehow. Uh, not so much again that he would follow along our path, but rather to deceive God's people into following along with his with this notion that, hey, we're buddies now. It's okay now. We, we, can, we, can, we can sort of link arms in certain ways here. If you can't beat them, join them. And, and the point of, of his tactic in that is to get us to compromise. To compromise truth, to compromise our faith. And ultimately to compromise our witness, right? God's people have been given a missional charge in the world. We're, we're to reflect him. We're to reflect his values. And if, if Satan can sort of ally with us in various ways and sort of derail that, then hey, so be it. He does it all the time. Christians don't always succumb to overt threats. You know, we're not that stupid, right? We don't always succumb to overt threats, but sometimes easily we'll fall prey to so-called invitations of peace. And we do that with the systems of the world in, in various ways. And, and, and again, recognizing that there's a spiritual attack still at work there. How does Satan do it? He does it by repeated nudges. Do you notice that here in the text? They're making this invitation to the peace summit, and Nehemiah says no, and they come back and they do it again. No, and they come back and they do it again. No, 
They come back and they do it again, right? Just these, these continual little taps on the shoulder. And that's how temptation comes, right? It just continually sort of taps you on the shoulder until you give in. That's the tactic of, of temptation. And that's exactly what we see at work here. And does it work? Well, it works all the time, right? It works all the time. It doesn't work on Nehemiah here, praise God. But it works on God's people all the time. And in fact, chapter 13 will tell us that it worked on a lot of people in Israel. A lot of them who compromised. Especially by, chapter 13 will tell us, marrying foreign wives. Again, like the constant struggle of, of God's people throughout the whole, the whole return period here. And what got them into trouble in the first place that got them exiled in, you know, the first time around. They're marrying foreign wives. And we've talked about why that was a problem. Not because God is, is ethnically or racially, uh, exclusive, but because it's a religious issue, right? If, if you're, if you marry someone, there's, there's no deeper alignment with somebody than that. And if you're marrying somebody who's worshiping a different God, a false God, it's going to draw your hearts away from true faith. And so, you know, God says, don't do that. And they're doing it again, chapter 13. And get this, get this. Not only is, uh, is happening across the board in, in Jerusalem, but one of the uh, most sort of shocking examples of this is that the high priest's own grandson marries Sanballat's daughter. Nehemiah 13, you don't have to turn there, but just listen. Verses 20 and 29 says, And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. And Nehemiah says, Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they've desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. They're desecrating right worship. And for crying out loud, even the high priest's own family marries Sanballat's daughter. Listen, it's, it's impossible to remain faithful to the Lord when you're in cahoots with the world. That's the, that's the point here. It's impossible to remain faithful when you're deeply entangled with the world. And that's why the scriptures continually, uh, admonish and instruct the people of God against falling back into the temptations of the world. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. First uh, John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We see it in, in Paul's ministry in 2 Timothy 4. He, he talks about his, his ministry partners and he, and he mentions one of them. He says, uh, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Right? So even professing believers, if, if we're running back to the, the, the systems of the world and alliances with the world and in love with the world, it's impossible to remain faithful to the Lord. What made Nehemiah different? How did he not fall like so many others did? Well, again, here's a, here's a key point. Nehemiah had knowledge of and, and he was obedient to God's word. 
In verse 3, when he says, why should I leave this wall and come down? This great work that we're doing, why should we leave it? Why, why shouldn't they do that? Because God had told him to build the wall. Right? He's, he's adhering to what God had said. Why would I turn my back on what God has said to do what you've said? I know the Word of God. I'm going to obey the Word of God. That's what helped him to keep his integrity and not fall like so many others. He's thinking, what do I have in common with these men? Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. What, what will it say to the people about my integrity if I go back on what I've been saying all along? I've been saying all along, God has told us to do this. If I suddenly appear like I'm waffling on that, what, is, what does that say about my integrity to the people? What will that do to their confidence, not just in me, but in God? It would only serve to undermine that confidence, right? And, and that's, that's where his integrity shows up. I'm not going to bow. I'm going to stick with the Lord and his word. And those are the, the questions that, that we ought to continually be asking in, in discernment when we're presented with lots of peace invitations, right? The first one is this. Does this line up with what God has said? There's no notion here that which we're supposed to separate ourselves out from the world. Don't get me wrong. Don't get the text wrong here. Uh, we're in the world. It's not supposed to be of the world. So if the world is asking us to do something that doesn't line up with what God has said, be discerning enough to know the answer ought to be we can't. And the second thing is, would this alliance be reflective of or would it contradict God's mission and call on his people's lives? I said earlier that Nehemiah's discernment was right. He was spot on that they wanted to do him harm. And this is proven by the revelation of Sambalat's true motives in verse 5 through 7. Look down at it again. So after the four times, the tapping on the shoulder doesn't work. Again, in the same way, Sambalat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that, that you and the Jews intend to rebel that's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you want to become their king, Nehemiah. What, what's happening here? Well, what's happening here is that Sambalat just doesn't understand what's really going on. And we should expect that, right? If Nehemiah's motive is to say, look, God has told us to continue this work. We're not supposed to make these alliances. We just need to stick to building the wall, to making sure that the temple worship is going on, to not, to not lock arms with the world around us. That, from, from God's people's perspectives, they ought to understand the, the, the intent of God is that he's, he's building a, a called out, holy set apart people. Right? That he's, he's creating a, a mission in the world, a visible display of his kingdom in the midst of the world's kingdoms. But if you're outside of that and you don't understand anything about that, like Sambalat, it, it kind of makes sense. All you can see is like, this just looks like rebellion. Have you forgotten? We're all under Persian rule here. We're supposed to be following a, a certain king. And if you're building a wall and you have this history of, of what we would consider rebellion, clearly, Nehemiah, you must want to be setting yourself up as king. This just looks shady. He just doesn't understand. Why? Because the world's worldview and God's worldview are just, they're so polar opposite in so many ways that it doesn't make sense to one another. 
And so Nehemiah's response is what ours should be. Read verse 8 and 9. I said to him, no such things as you say have been done. You're inventing them out of your own mind. Right? So he's denying the false accusations. And what happens when, when the world doesn't understand? Just, just like Sambalat, they start to make these accusations that are just false because of the misunderstanding. And we see it happen all the time. It happens in our own day, right? When the, when the world system looks at the church and following after the ways of God and it just, it doesn't make sense. It's, it seems like rebellion. We, we can get labeled as rebels, as disruptors, haters, bigots. I mean, you name it, right? And Nehemiah doesn't really address any of that head on. They just to say, look, this isn't true. It's not, not reality. And he continues to just keep following the Lord. That should be our response as well. Keep adhering to the Word of God. Deny the accusation, but keep adhering to the Word of God. What's the principal point of all this? It's this. It's that, look, the system, the systems of the world are never interested in anything but promoting the systems of the world. Don't ever underestimate Satan's desire in that agenda to do harm to God's people. He might, he might dress up that desire in sort of innocuous clothing. He might make, you know, very, very appealing sounding peace invitations, but there's always a wolf lying in the wait. Fear tactics, false reports will usually accompany secular attempts to silence God's people, but our responsibility in all that is to say, no, just adhere to the truth of God and to our integrity. That should be our standard response. And that's a good blueprint for how Christians ought to navigate secular politics. Right? <clears throat> You're going to get labeled. You're going to get misunderstood. Just adhere to the Word of God. Keep going. Deny false accusations outright, but keep going. So that's the first point. Integrity in dealing with Secular powers. Here's the second one. Integrity in dealing with compromised false prophets. Look at verse 10. It's like, it's like another wave of trouble. Here we go. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and I saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. All right, here's the moral of this, this story. Not all who claim to speak on behalf of God really speak for God. All right? He, he, he goes here to 
this house, this prophet's uh, house. And, and there's the sense there that Nehemiah knows this guy. He trusts this guy. Right? He's seeking out some, some counsel. He's looking for, for more of God's word. And, and yet what he gets instead is bad advice. Hey, let's go hide in the temple. Let's, let's go hide in the holy place of the temple. Well, what's the problem with that? You're not supposed to go in there, right? He's not a priest. To walk into there would be to sin against God. To walk into there would put himself in tremendous danger with God. The idea that to go in there and to find safety and refuge from these outside threats for Nehemiah is like, well, that, that seems like minor in compared to offending God. And yet this is what this false prophet has asked him to do. Not everybody who speaks on behalf of God or claims to speak on behalf of God really does. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets. They'll come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They look like the real deal. They look innocent enough. They look helpful. But they're not. There's a few key clues in this scene that explain how and why false prophets appear. And, and they are really helpful. Just, just consider these three things with me. The first one is this. They have the appearance of godliness and the appearance of trustworthiness but are really in service to the world. Right? Again, they look on the outside like they're, they're God's messengers. They're God's people. And again, Nehemiah seemed to trust that this was one of the prophets of Israel. And yet, coming to find out, no, he's really in service of the world. He's actually been hired by Tobiah and Sambalot. He's in the service of the enemy. Secondly, they're often motivated by fear. Right? Which seems kind of illogical in some ways, but, but consider this. What, what this prophet is saying is, look, I've already sold myself out to Sambalat and Tobiah. Why? Probably because I'm afraid of them. I'm afraid of what they might do to me, so I will work in service with them, and I'll, I'll do what they've asked. They've asked me to get Nehemiah to compromise himself by going into the temple, right? There's this, there's this perception of safety that's really driven by fear, because what? I'm afraid of man more than I fear God. And so I become compromised. And lastly, they'll speak of spiritual sounding advice, but actually then lead people to contradict God's word. What, what, what more spiritual advice could you give than let's go take refuge in the temple of God? Right? If Nehemiah didn't know his Bible very well, you might think, well, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, let's take refuge in the house of the Lord. What, what more spiritual thing could we do than that? Right? But he's actually enticing Nehemiah to sin. Jesus said false prophets will be recognized by their fruit. And Nehemiah discerned this prophet was not from God, again, because it was clear to him, because Nehemiah knew the word, and Nehemiah followed the word, that this dude's not preaching the word. Here's the principal point. Never trade biblical integrity for perceived safety. Always be discerning when listening to prophets and teachers. Never trade integrity for perceived safety. 1 John 4 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. How do you know? You know? How do you know? 
If somebody is a false teacher, well, again, know your Bible. Well, what if I, what if I get tripped up there? How, how can I know? Well, well, John in 1 John 4, right after he says, don't believe every spirit, he, he says there's one way to know. He says that a true teacher will not deny the lordship of Christ. Yeah, I read uh, very recently in the Chicago Sun-Times an interview of a, a fairly new pastor at a very prominent downtown Chicago Presbyterian church, uh, which is no knock, what I'm about to say is no knock on Presbyterianism. I love Presbyterians, all right? But this just happened to be a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, and in the interview, the interviewer asked her, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? The only way to heaven? And she basically said, well, no. I mean, I subscribe to the Christian tradition because it sort of works for me, but I think there's lots of different ways that you can get to God. Well, what did Jesus say? John 14, what does Jesus say? I am the way, I am the truth, I'm the life. There's no other way to the Father but through me. Right? So if, if I'm denying that Jesus is the only way to God, write me off. I'm a false teacher. They'll never deny the lordship of Christ. And secondly, they won't ever ask you to do something contrary to the word of God. Like this guy was trying to do with Nehemiah. Remember in Acts chapter 5, when the, the disciples are being rebuked for, for, for basically doing what Jesus had said for them to do, go preach the gospel. And the authorities said, hey, stop preaching the gospel. And they, and they said, look, we've got to obey God rather than men. Martin Luther was told, shut up, stop preaching the gospel. And he said, here I stand, I can do no other. Right? Integrity in politics almost always involves the necessary discernment of false prophets. Almost always, because they're everywhere. But having integrity knows to keep, again, looking to the truth of God's Word. Do what He says. Don't, don't fear man. Be careful. Because they look real, some of them. Thirdly, integrity in dealing with influential insiders. This one's a little bit more close to home for Nehemiah and for all of us. He's just dealt with those outsiders. He's dealt with a false teacher. That was getting close to home. This one, even more so. Look at verse 15. We'll finish out the text. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. That's the good news of the, the last part of this passage. Here's where it gets a little bit bad again. Verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. The nobles of Judah. So he's talking about the, the, the elite, the, uh, the highest society types of his own people. They sent letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son, 
Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Now don't get lost in all the hard names to pronounce there. You see what's going on? So Tobiah has married into the Jewish elite. He's got a Jewish wife. He's part of the family now. And so a lot of the upper echelons in society, the high, high class folks that are, that are sort of running in that circle, now they're like making buddies with Tobiah. Verse 18. Or maybe it's, sorry, it's 19. And also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, Nehemiah says. And they reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now, we get a little more background on Tobiah here. Again, he's been around a lot throughout the book. He's been an agitator throughout this book. He's been an enemy of Nehemiah. He's been an enemy against God's work. But there's some descriptions here that emerged for the first time that shed a lot of light on how dangerously intertwined the people of Jerusalem had become with him. He's a, he's a politically ambitious guy. We know that. He's a governor of neighboring Ammon. He's a worldly wise businessman who's already seen. But he's got some credentials that Sanballat and Geshem, the other two guys, didn't have. The first one is this. He's got a Jewish name. Sanballat was a Persian name. Tobiah is a Jewish name. You know what it actually means? It means goodness of God. The agitator's name was goodness of God. That's kind of funny, right? Uh, but that sort of gives him the appearance of being one of us to the people. Second, he's connected again through marriage to a high-ranking family in Jerusalem. And it seems that he's engaged in business dealings then with the wealthy and the elite of the city, as I've already mentioned. So what's going on here? Well, here's what's happening. There's been this shift in, in, in the people's posture and attitudes towards this guy, Tobiah. It seems that his past behavior has largely been forgotten as a local businessman, as the, I should say, the local businessman now see him as, uh, you know, profitable buddy to have. There's financial rewards in conducting business with Tobiah. There's, there's rewards in doing politics with him. And so, emboldened by that, Tobiah then starts this letter campaign back and forth with the elite, the influencers of the city, and he's, 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 he's whispering, undermining things about Nehemiah. He's trying to discredit Nehemiah amongst the influencers of the city. And he's saying things like, look, he's treating me badly, which means he's treating you badly. I mean, we're family, right? We're family. We're connected. Nehemiah's trying to disrupt our prosperity here. And the campaign is working. Distrust of Nehemiah is growing. Notice again how they report what Nehemiah is saying back to Tobiah. Right? They're not just acting as go-betweens here. They're speaking of all the good stuff that Tobiah does uh, in, intentionally in front of Nehemiah. And then whatever Nehemiah says, they're whispering it back to Tobiah. They're, they're working as agents of Tobiah. Their loyalties are revealed. What's, what's happening here? Well, look, when you get into bed with the enemy, which is what they've done, you start valuing their power and their benefits more than you value the voice of God. And what God values. Why? Because, well, they're getting money, right? They're getting, they're getting power and money and power easily make us forget or just sidestep our ethical responsibilities and our integrity. 
You know, I got to say that studying this part of the passage had me in knots this week because I, I just kept seeing parallels to our own religious political climate and how it speaks to so much of what's wrong with the American church. Did you kind of pick that up as I was talking about it? What was going on here? Think about this. You know, one, one of the most disappointing things for me, uh, and I hope it's disappointing for all of us, but it certainly has been for me, is the way that the word evangelical, a word that I love so much, has been sort of uh, co-opted and, and, and redefined now as being something that speaks of partisan politics or certain economic priorities. Do you know what the word evangelical means? Evangelicals literally means people of the gospel. <laughs> people of the gospel. And, and, yet, and yet it's not known for that anymore. It, it's become known as, as, as anything but the gospel. It's sort of known for priorities that are antithetical to the gospel. Antithetical to the way of Christ. Evangelicals in our day are being accused, and rightly so, of, like these folks, forgetting or ignoring the past or current behavior of shady men and women simply because they have loose alignments with things that are sort of vaguely Christian. Christian in name. Or, or, or making alliances with these people because, look, there's benefit in that for us. They benefit our priorities. And and in doing so, we're sidestepping or just flat-out ignoring gospel-oriented, Jesus-oriented, ethical priorities. And when someone calls them out for doing so, much like Nehemiah, they get silenced and no longer trusted because, look, you're threatening our prosperity. Where's the integrity? You know, I hate to abandon a word as beautiful and as meaningful as evangelical because I love the evangel. <laughs> I love the gospel. But I'm, I'm about ready to shelve it because I don't want to describe myself in a way that, that comes with so much ungodly baggage anymore. I pray that the witness of that word and of the church will someday be redeemed when the church reclaims it by acting according to the gospel. I don't think we're there yet. But here's the thing. Thank God He always retains some who don't bow the knee. Right? That retain their integrity. And that's where Nehemiah comes in. He was such a man. He, he stuck to the Lord. He followed God's Word and he cut through the lies and the misunderstandings of the world and the compromised church by simply staying the course and pursuing the kingdom of God. You want to know why Sambalat thought that this rebuilding of the wall was an act of rebellion? You want to know why he thought it was the prelude to the establishing of a rival king in Nehemiah? Uh, arrival to the to the Persians who dominated the world, who dominated them, who dominated the region at that time. They were they were supposed to be in control. Why did why did Samblat think that that's what was going on? Here's why: because there was a shred of truth to his assessment. He got something very wrong. He thought that Nehemiah wanted to be king. Nehemiah had no interest in becoming king. However, 
Nehemiah was building the wall because he was expecting in great hope a day that would come when the true king would come. The Messiah. Jesus Christ. He he wasn't looking to rebel against Persia. He was waiting for the day when Messiah would come and bring about a new kingdom that would not only rival, but overcome the systems of the world, which was embodied by the Persians in that day. You know what he was doing? Nehemiah was observing Advent. With every, every stone that they, that they laid upon that wall, it was like singing another verse of, Come thou long expected Jesus. That's what they were doing. And how did he live for that day? How did he live for the kingdom? How did he live for Christ? He did it by being a worker approved by God, not as one who seeks his approval from men. You know, the Apostle Paul says of the worker approved by God, this is 2 Timothy 2.4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Nehemiah stayed focused on the Word of God and on the work of God even in the midst of overwhelming opposition. And you know what? There's victory in that. We read it, but just look back at verse 15 and 16 again. The good news at the end. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. God did that. They, they, they saw it. They got it. God always keeps his promises. God always completes what he begins. Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. What kingdom are you living for? Think about that this morning. What, what kingdom are you living for? How, how are you going to navigate as you're going out of here today and you're, and you're, and you're entering back into the workplace this week or into family politics or church politics? How are you, how are you going to navigate that? How, what kingdom are you living for? Here's how you'll navigate it well by walking according to God's word with integrity and diligently and discerningly working by faith towards the day when the true king will come back. Every day, every day for the Christian is Advent season. Every day for the Christian is Advent season. Come thou long expected Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this important passage of your word. Thank you for passages like this that are just so rich in application for us. And we thank you, Lord, that even as we look out in our own day and we see similar kinds of opposition, similar kinds of temptation, similar sort of politicking in our lives, 
that would seek to get our eyes off of Christ, that, that would seek to get us to be afraid and, and fear man more than we fear you, to, to enter, in, entangle ourselves with the world in various ways. Lord, we, just, we thank you that we can look to Christ and be reminded that what Nehemiah hoped for happened. He came. The king arrived. And he didn't come with pomp and circumstance. He didn't come with an army. He came as a, a humble little baby boy. He came in weakness. And he lived in weakness. And he died in weakness. Because in that weakness, the power of God was revealed. He lived a life where we couldn't live. He, 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 he perfectly kept his eyes on the Father. He perfectly lived out the values of your kingdom. And, and in his great love, he took our failures and our sin upon himself and he died that you might judge us in him. By his resurrection, he reigns victorious over sin and death and the systems of the world. And by faith in him, so do we. So remind us of who we are in Christ. Remind us that, that while we're still here and we're, we're still navigating a world that is, just doesn't always understand and will sometimes persecute, that our, our task is to keep our eyes firmly fixed on you, to walk with the integrity of knowing and following your word and trusting in the, the risen reigning King of Jesus who will come back and set it all right once and for all. Give us integrity in our hope, in our trust, in our holiness. And thank you for Jesus who makes it possible. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.